0: You're listening to the Bible Teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer. Whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's the father of a son, and he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, shall he go? And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his day he eats darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Verse 1 There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than heat. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth. Yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Lots to cover today, so we're just going to dive right into it. So you probably heard the phrase respect the hustle anyone ever heard that phrase respect the hustle meaning appreciate someone's sheer grit and determination to obtain that tireless straining to achieve their goals we glorify it we encourage it it's what companies are looking for in the hiring process they are looking for someone with hustle they are looking For someone that's got hunger, a go getter, someone that's gonna go out there and be driven. But the preacher of Ecclesiastes has a very different statement for us. His statement for us in this passage that we're looking at today is essentially this beware of the hustle. What you're talking about, respect the hustle. The preacher says, beware of the hustle. Because that tireless striving to get ahead, that tireless striving, to achieve, and to accumulate more is actually just another chasing after the wind, and it may even, in the end, cost you everything. Like every other promising thing under the sun, the pursuit of wealth is vanity. There's that word that shows up almost 40 times in this book, vanity, havel, which means like grasping at smoke. So today, as we look at the elusive nature of wealth. What I want to do is I want to draw out three themes. Again, we have a lot to cover today. But I want us to see three major themes that seem uh, to be prominent in this passage. And then we'll kind of look at some of the details as we go along. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at these three things today. First, our appetite for affluence. Secondly, the liability of luxury. And finally, empowered to enjoy. Before I go any further... I just injured my thumb. It's like a, a sprain. It's more frustrating than anything. So if you're like, what happened to his hand? Just a minor sprain, okay? Is that dealt with and answered all of your like questions now? Okay, good. First, our appetite for affluence. So the preacher begins by pointing out large-scale societal issues. Things that we are very familiar with. Oppression of the poor breakdown, injustice, bureaucracy, corrupt leaders. So far, what he's said here is it's pretty bipartisan perspective right here. No one is going to be surprised by this. No one's going to be shocked. In fact, he says, do not be amazed by the matter. Don't act surprised. Greed is embedded in the systems and the structures of government and power from the top down. It doesn't matter if it's a democracy or a socialist state or a monarchy or communism or capitalism, they all involve officials that are looking out for themselves and looking out for each other at the expense of the people that they're supposed to be serving. Sound familiar so far? Nothing shocking yet. And so we begin by exploring the topic of wealth and greed by looking out there. Yeah, that's right. That's right, preacher. The wealthy, the powerful, they're so greedy. They're the problem. We often talk about the 1%, a small group of people that hold a, you know, a majority of the wealth of this world. That's, that's right. It's so messed up. They are what's wrong with this world. They are the reason behind this corrupt system. It's so messed up. But then the preacher suddenly makes it very personal. Verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. So this isn't just aimed at the wealthy, but let me pause real quick, because globally speaking, we are all very wealthy. Whether you're in the six-figure incomes, or you are on WIC, EBT, Social, Social Security, and the government is paying all your bills, still, globally speaking, we are extremely wealthy. But notice this. This isn't just aimed at the wealthy. He is aimed at anyone who loves the idea of being wealthy. Anyone who has ever dreamed or fantasized about being rich. Poor people, rich people, everyone in between has this in common. We all, at various points in our lives, maybe even right now, have an unhealthy desire for money. We have an inordinate desire for wealth. When a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, I can't live without this, it's an idol. It has your heart. You are worshiping that thing. You are enslaved to it. And we all, at various points in our lives, have an unrighteous, and unrighteous dependence on money. And we say things like, if I just had a little bit more, things would be different. Now, we're pretty moderate about it, we're like, I'm not trying to be Warren Buffett or like Elon Musk. I'm not trying to like be super rich, I'm just asking for more. Just a little bit more. Then I'd have the peace of mind that I want. If I just reached this one financial goal, then I'd feel complete. Then I'd have the kind of security that I've always dreamed of. Then I'd be able to achieve my goals. Then I'd be less stressed. All the time and and anxiously looking through my bank account, then, then I would be happy. Except for the fact that it's never enough. And it never ends there, does it? You ever heard of the name John D. Rockefeller? He was one of the wealthiest people in the world during the 19th and 20th century. He was once asked the question, how much money is enough money? Any guesses what his answer was? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Look at me again in chapter 6, verse 3. But his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. Verse 7, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not what? Satisfied. Just a little more, and it's not enough. The final verse of our passage, verse 9, it it describes that wandering appetite, always roaming for more, not or never quite content. Think about when you go to a restaurant. Maybe you're with people, maybe you're alone. You look through the menu, you order something, the food comes, and then you look across the table and you're thinking, oh, I wish I would have ordered that. This sounded good until I saw what you ordered. Or, you know, you see the the waiter or waitress like bringing the food to some other table like, oh, oh, what's that? I regret my decision. Or you turn the keys in your car and you're on your merry way, not thinking of anything, and then you see that new car stroll by. You're like, oh, that's kind of nice. I still have like five and a half years on this loan, but that looks pretty nice. And you justify, you're like, well, it's EV. I'm concerned about the ecosystem, of course. This will be better for the environment. Who are you kidding? It's flashy. It's nice. It smells new. Or you get that promotion, you get that raise, and then you're almost immediately thinking about how you will continue to advance. Or how now you can use that raise to leverage your opportunities maybe with another company. The craving for wealth is insatiable, which means it's impossible to satisfy. It is literally an endless abyss. It's like throwing marbles in the Grand Canyon. I want you to envision that with me if you're able throwing marbles into the Grand Canyon. At a certain point, it doesn't really matter whether it's one marble or 10 million marbles. It's never going to fill it. All the marbles in the world will never fill the Grand Canyon. And the preacher is pointing out what ought to be obvious, but never seems to be, that it makes no sense at all to try to accumulate more in order to satisfy the appetite of our soul. It makes no sense. That drive for more is not logical. And so the question is why do we have that impulse to fill? Why do we have that drive to accumulate more and to achieve more and to succeed and to get and to obtain? Well, if you remember from our study in chapter three, the preachers already told us the answer to that question. We're told in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 that he, speaking of God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. What are we reading here? What the preacher is saying is that God has set eternity in your heart. Do you believe that? That the capacity for the eternal resides In you, me? My little life? Yes, you. Yet we, in and of ourselves, are unable to fathom why. We're not able to make sense of it on our own. So here we are, year after year, paycheck after paycheck, job after job, advancement after advancement, trying to fill it with more. And the sad irony is that the more that we grasp for wealth and all that wealth promises, the more out of reach satisfaction becomes. The more we think we're going to be satisfied, the less satisfied we are. The more we fill our lives, the emptier we become. And we consume and we consume, and it only serves to exploit the hunger that was always there. Now, the preacher points out something, uh, I think, terrifying in this passage. What the preacher points out is that the worst thing that could happen in your life The worst thing that could happen in your life is not failure. It's not poverty or an empty bank account. The worst thing, in fact, he calls it evil, a grievous evil. The worst thing that can happen in your life, listen to me, is actually getting everything that you ever wanted, succeeding, in all of your professional career and financial goals, making it, whatever that means in your life, truly making it. And then there, realizing that you are absolutely incapable of enjoying it at all. Getting everything you ever dreamed of and realizing that it's empty. You suffer twice. You suffer all of the cost and sacrifice involved in the grit and determination to get the thing And then you suffer the pain and frustration of finding out that it's empty. Malcolm Muggridge put it this way. Human beings are peculiar in that they avidly pursue ends they know will bring them no satisfaction. They gorge themselves with food which cannot nourish and with pleasures which cannot please. And I love this next statement. I am a prize example. Humans are weird. Take me for instance. Reality, this is the kind of humility and honesty that we need in order to experience transformation and the freedom that God intends for our lives and for our church. The ability to see greed not just as an out there problem, not just as a Warren Buffett, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, all those people sort of problem, but the ability to say, I am a prize example, no matter what tax bracket you find yourself within. I am prize example. Amen? No? <laughs> All right, I'll just try to keep convincing you. <laughs> Secondly, the liability of luxury. Are you guys still with me? Okay. Amens let me know. I don't need to keep belaboring the point, by the way. Just get us out of here quicker. Let's look secondly at the liability of luxury. The liability of luxury. Now, Annie Dillard, an author, retells the story of these British explorers in the 1800s that went exploring various portions of the North Pole. Despite knowing that it would be a very long journey, over a year-long journey, each boat in the expedition was only carrying 12 days of coal, despite, again, knowing what it was going to take because of their concern over space issues. But instead of the essentials like coal, the ships were equipped with a 1,200-volume library, an organ, fine china place uh, place sets, glass wine goblets, and a load of sterling silver flatware. We don't have room for all those things. This is what we're going to fill our ships with. They had no special clothing for the coal, in their like you know standard issued navy suits. And as the story goes that when the indigenous people of that area later came across their frozen dead remains they found that the men were trying to escape in a lifeboat listen to this filled with silver and chocolate. Silver and chocolate. Faced with the harsh nature of the Arctic We laugh at it because clearly these luxuries were of no value. What are they going to do for you? And so it is with many of us. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to get us to see here. That faced with our own mortality, we are all going to die. And faced with the reality of coming judgment for all of us. And the reality of eternity, heaven or hell. In the end... Wealth will be equally unhelpful for us. It will mean nothing when we die. It will mean nothing when we face God. In fact, wealth is not only incapable of saving us, wealth is not only incapable of satisfying our souls, the preacher makes it clear here, wealth is a liability. Look with me again in chapter 5, verse 13. There is a grievous evil. This is not trivial. This is evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his what? His hurt. The pursuit of wealth becomes harmful for everyone involved. To others, the pursuit of wealth is often going to mean oppression and injustice, whether it means shorting other people or stealing from other people or climbing on the backs of other people, or just simply neglecting the needs of other people. In our pursuit of wealth, we are going to participate in injustice and oppression. But it also, he says, is harmful in our own lives. We become afflicted by the dissatisfaction. We become enslaved by this drive for more. Our minds are busy. We're stressed our stomachs and our, our knots, we can't sleep, and on and on and on. The myth that we have all bought in America, in fact, it's like embedded in the American dream, is that the more you get, the better life is going to be. The more that you get, the better life is. But if we stop and think about it, we know this isn't true. As Biggie Smalls put it, more money, more problems. Good. Good. The more you get, the more it will cost you. Practically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, there is a severe cost. And so the preacher does what any wise person should do. Any wise, shrewd person dealing with finances, he assesses the liability. Whenever you're going to be involved in any kind of venture, you've got to assess the liability. But what he's doing is what very few people are actually willing to do. He is assessing the liability of wealth itself. Not what it will cost, you know, like, what will cost money involved in this process, but what money will cost him. So I want you to think about this. If we get a raise, or if we get a promotion, or some, I don't know, inheritance, or some sort of amount of money comes into our lives, we all think, how is this gonna change our lives, right? How's this going to change? What am I going to be able to pay off? Am I going to be able to do this and do that? And those aren't bad questions. But the Christian also needs to ask some hard, honest questions like this: How may this change me for the worse? How will this potentially harm me? What's this going to mean for my soul? What's this going to mean for my spiritual freedom? What's this going to mean for my relationships in the church? What's this going to mean for my devotion to Christ? I have personally known a number of people that absolutely made it. All their dreams come true. And that only serve to draw, draw them further away from God in this church. I can get on their Instagram right now and see them living the life separated from God separated from devotion to his people. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6 says, but those who, again, desire, it's not obtaining, it's desire to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, And it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. He says this desire for wealth is like taking some sort of sharp object and piercing yourself. So let's look at the liabilities that the preacher mentions here. First, the preacher says, when wealth increases so do the moochers. When wealth increases, so do the moochers. Look at me in chapter five, verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. People come out of the woodworks. This could be freeloaders, this could be family, this could be that old high school buddy, like, hey, I saw you're doing well, we should should get together again. I heard you got a boat, I like going on boats. We know this is gonna be the government, Michelle and I were watching a survival show where the winner wins $500,000. And it's like 12 contestants, and they're all alone, and uh, if that gave away the show. And they're, they're interviewing themselves with a camera, and they're all going on and on about how this money is going to change their lives. They're talking crazy, like, I'm going to be able to pay off my house and all my debt, and I'm never going to have to work again. I'm going to be able to spend all the rest of my life with my children. And I'm sitting there thinking, who's going to tell them? Are you you guys going to warn them that they will likely walk away with half if they're lucky? If they're lucky? This one's for free. The more you make, the more they take. Secondly, when wealth increases, so does the stress of losing it. Verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The more you accumulate, the more you're gonna be up late at night, stressed about how you're gonna keep it. The laborer, the blue collar worker, the lower paid employee doesn't have very much. But the preacher says they have something that No amount of money in the world will ever be able to buy a good night's sleep. A full eight hours. Now, the preacher's not a doctor, and as far as I know, he's not a sleep analyst. But he makes an extremely important and interesting point here. That insomnia and wealth are strangely related. I thought this was interesting, so I actually looked into this, and it turns out he's absolutely Right. Science backs this up. One journal article I read said that sleeplessness is more rare among the poor than among wealthier neighbors. Insomnia is a privileged problem. So the preacher goes on to list a number of other liabilities. You guys still with me? Okay, Uh, when wealth increases, so does darkness. Just look at the tabloids right now. Just look at celebrities, the people that have made it, the people that, where their lives are filled with wealth. What do you see? Absolute freaking darkness. Vexation, frustration. I don't meet a lot. I don't meet a lot of calm and unbusy rich people. I meet a lot of stressed rich people. Sickness takes a toll on your body. Anger. Everything's a threat at that point. Smeagol from The Lord of the Rings, Hobbit Stories, illustrates that slow, devastating regression, and I'm not going to say the precious in his voice, because I really can't do that voice. But in his life, you see that slow, devastating regression into an isolated, obsessed individual. In fact, the preacher describes a man that despite having a hundred children, so he's giving an extreme example here, but I think about that character from Uh, Dr. Sousa just has like that line of children. Despite having a hundred children at the end of his life, he doesn't even have a proper burial. His pursuit of wealth isolated himself so severely that there's absolutely no one left at the end of his life to even respectfully put his body in the ground. So question... Have you honestly assessed the liability of reaching your goals? Have you honestly assessed what it will cost you if and when you get that thing you've been craving? You ready for good news? All right, let's look finally at empowered to enjoy. Remember, the preacher is showing us that financial failure is not the worst thing that could happen. The worst thing that could happen is financial success when it comes to someone who is incapable of enjoying it. Chapter, one, or chapter 6, verse 1, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. This is a grievous evil. We talk about the blessed life, Hashtag blessed. And we often think about that meaning material blessings. Someone who's blessed has all the things that they've ever dreamed of and prayed for. However, the preacher flips this and says, what many may consider blessing may actually be a curse. Next time you're tempted to think that God loves and favors someone more than you because they've got something that you don't? To think that God has neglected you, he's abandoned you because you didn't get that thing that you've been praying for forever, but someone else did? Think again. Because it may actually be that God is heaping judgment upon them and grace upon you. Anyone listening? God may be heaping wrath and judgment on them and grace on you and your lack. But sandwiched into the middle of this passage is the hope of a good life. The good life. Chapter 5, verse 18, Behold, What I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and listen, and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. The true blessing from God. And we are redefining some things that are embedded deep into American Christianity right now, by the way. We are pushing against evangelical powers that be right now. The true blessing that comes from God is not wealth, is not success, is not the material things that we obsess over. The blessing from God is the power to enjoy what we have been given, whether it's a lot or it's a little. It's God's gracious gift of contentment. The Apostle Paul would put it this way in Philippians 4. For I have learned in whatever situation, I am to be what? Content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. I, in, in, every, in any and in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do All things through him who strengthens me. So it's interesting to know the context of that verse, by the way. Maybe it's your life verse. It's the power to be content when you're brought low or you're brought high. We are appetite or I'm sorry, we are empowered by God to enjoy the life that we've been given right now. The truth is, our appetite for wealth is never going to be filled. And fulfilled with more. It's a craving, as I've said, that nothing under the sun, nothing under the sun will ever be able to satisfy. But remember, that's the point. That's the point of all this. All throughout this book, the preacher is causing us to see the emptiness and the short-lived nature of all these things on earth, wealth included, so that we begin to desire life beyond the sun. C.S. Lewis once said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. And that's an important clarification, because contentment is not about dulling our passions. Contentment is not about neutralizing our desires and, like, whipping ourselves into shape and, like, Forcing ourselves to no longer desire things. God is not asking you to decrease your appetite for more. God is simply calling you to redirect your heart and redirect your soul toward what will satisfy. And until you grasp that, you are going to see God as a threat to your success in your future. Until you grasp that, Until you believe this, you are going to think Christianity is always seeking to take away from your life instead of fill it. But the good news is this the life changing grace that I urge you to receive today is that God is so committed to your fulfillment, God is so committed to your future, God is so committed to your flourishing. That he is refusing to allow you to settle for anything less than the eternity sized satisfaction that you and I were created to enjoy. And this is how he does it. Chapter 5, verse 20. For he will not much remember the days of his life. In other words, we won't be fretting about the details of the day because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. That's how. That's the secret of contentment that Paul's talking about. That is what the preacher's urging us to experience. The soul is only satisfied when it is occupied with God's joy and nothing else. A joy that we can never earn through toil. A joy that we can never achieve through hard work. A joy that we can never buy with any amount of money it's a joy that comes to us through salvation by free grace. It's a joy that fills and floods our lives when we place all of our trust in the crucified and risen Jesus by going all in on him. The one who was rich and yet for your sake became poor so that, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The gospel is the good news of this. That at the cross... Jesus was stripped of everything. All of his honor, all of his fame, his life, his inheritance, everything. So that through faith in him and through his powerful resurrection, we today could be crowned with his honor. So that we could receive his life. So that we could have the hope of his inheritance. Friend, the more that we treasure Jesus and Jesus alone, the more that God's joy fills our hearts, the less we will crave anything less. Our hearts will be occupied with the security that God alone brings into our lives. Our hearts will be occupied with the peace that God brings. Our hearts will be occupied with the pleasure that God brings. Our hearts will be occupied with the hope of reward in heaven and life everlasting. That bottomless pit will be filled to such a capacity that greed will no longer find a home in us. The only way we can purge ourselves of greed and this pursuit of wealth is to fill our souls with something more satisfying. And the psalmist says it simply and yet so beautifully in the famous Psalm 23, my cup overflows. My cup overflows. Once we're filled with God's joy, that's when we are empowered to enjoy the things in our life's best. You think that this means that, it means that we're supposed to enjoy God so much that we hate everything else in life. I'm so satisfied in God, I have no joy in anything else in my life. No, the opposite is true. The more we enjoy God, the more we enjoy what we have. Some of the godliest people that I've ever met, some seriously Jesus-loving people, know how to enjoy life. They know their Bibles, and they know their wine lists. They work hard and they rest hard. They have financial goals, but they have fun. They're responsible and yet they're willing to splurge. They put in the time and they take time off. They save and yet they're extremely generous with their money. This is the kind of person that I desire to be. This is the kind of church that I pray that we would be. This is the kind of people that the gospel of Jesus makes us into a people that cling so tightly to the treasure that we have in Jesus that we release our grip on money. And as we release our grip on money, its grip on us is released as well. Jesus, our treasure, our cup overflows. Let the abundance that is ours in Jesus fill us to overflowing today. Amen? Let's pray. Father.